Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Almost forgot the name of my own show for a second. Uh, today we're going to be talking with Blair Alt from Milam and Green Whiskey down in. Uh, I want to make sure I pronounce this right. Blanco, Texas. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, technically the locals go go with Blanco, but mm-hmm. as long as you're not, you know, as long as you're within the range, you're good. Okay. Of course, you think Blanco right away. But I'm like, mm, gotta listen to a couple podcasts just to make sure I was getting the pronunciation right for no other reason. No, I'm kidding. There it is. Um, so, uh, Blair, thank you for coming on. Uh, of course, Milam, was, Milam and Green uh, out of Texas. And, uh, you know, we've talked to a, maybe one or two Texas distilleries at this point. Not a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly they're kind of on the upswing quite a bit. So I'm really happy to have you on. So I thought we'd just start where most people would start. What's the Milam and Green origin story? Yeah. Um, well, we started off as Ben Milam Whiskey and we were, Ben Milam is our founder, Marsha Milam's uh, a third cousin, Texas Revolutionary War hero, uh, beautiful on a bottle, interesting name, all of that. Uh, the issue is that uh it turns out when you try to put Tennessee whiskey in a Texas bottle, that does not work out so well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and while there are still people who love Ben Milam, uh, Milam and Green is, is the same whiskey. It's just uh, it, it, it shows off the partnership between our founder, Marsha Milam, and now Heather Green, uh, who wrote Whiskey Distilled, as uh, Anthony Bourdain's whiskey expert, uh, quoted as being uh, his whiskey expert. And she really brought uh, a lot of expertise to the brand. However, Marsha had already brought on our master distiller, uh, Marlene Holmes, before, before Heather, Heather got down here. Uh, and Marlene was at Jim Beam for 25 years. She was hired by Booker No. Uh, and so having Marlene, Marsha, and Heather all, all together now, uh, that, is, that is really uh, the, the brains and passion uh, behind Milam and Green, and 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 now the names on the bottles stand for Marcia and uh, Heather. That's wonderful. And, uh, sorry, remind me the uh, the year. Yeah, I guess we're founding as Ben Milam. Yeah, uh, like- we are. So three years is the founding of Milam and Green. Uh, so mm. if you tack on a year behind that, that would have been Ben Milam. But uh, as Milam and Green, it's been three years. Okay, that's what I, I was thinking, of, but I wasn't sure because the na- the uh, name change. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I have, I, haven't, I obviously have not spoken to either Heather or, or Marlene. Um, and I have Heather's book. It's just like, if so many whiskey books to read at the moment, of course, I'm a little behind, but I will get to it. Um, and uh, the, so the idea for me reaching out to Marlene Green came from visiting uh, one of Heather's former spots, Fine and Rare. Or oh, nice. I, really, yeah. it was the, uh, the Flatiron Room, I guess. But, yeah, doing a tasting there, listening to Tommy talk, and he mentioned Heather Green. And I was like, oh, I remember, I remember that name. And then I looked again, and I was like, oh, this is a company I need to reach out to. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of how how this happened. And yeah, so with the changes of beyond the changes of the name, I'm curious uh, just to dive right in about uh, what kind of changes were made from, you know, Marlene coming on. Uh, it sounds like pretty pretty immediately when when the brand was launched 
Yeah, I mean, she was already, she had been distilling under the Ben Milam name. Uh, right. So that, yeah, that was, that, that was part of, she was part of the transition for sure into Milam and Green. Right. And then Heather joined after that. Yes. I uh, mean, Heather is definitely where it becomes Milam and Green, but yes, uh, sure. technically Marlene beat her by a few months, I, I hear. <laughs> sure. I was just curious more so, more than anything, uh, not to stir up any gossip, but it's more when you have two very strong, very competent whiskey personalities coming in at the same time, uh, if there were any kind of transitory periods of like who's going to handle which part of the whiskey and how, and even today, how do the two of them kind of balance those responsibilities? Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. Marlene is in charge of our rickhouse and all of the whiskey production. Her and uh, the distillery team are in charge of that. Uh, Heather is more in charge of, first of all, blending, uh, making, and well, even before we even get to blending, she's in charge of going out and finding whiskey if we if we are not distilling it ourselves and Marlene does still distill in Texas and in Kentucky mm-hmm. uh, so she has the opportunity to go to Kentucky a couple times a year distill at Bardstown on their huge column stills mm-hmm. uh, leave leave barrels there bring barrels back um, so we have we have that's Marlene that's enough for her she's <laughs> like being able to distill uh, in all these multiple areas but then Heather is also figuring out where where is the best whiskey currently resting is it in indiana is it in tennessee i don't know it could be in alaska at some point uh but where is it and bringing it back to the texas rick house for us to either age it there for a little longer or immediately bottle it um she's more in charge of yeah finding whiskey and figuring out what is going to be bottled and when so and also our entire brand image gotcha gotcha um I mean, there was an interesting thing to, to see that he distill, or I guess Marlene distills in both Texas and Kentucky and in Kentucky on uh, at Bardstown. So um, the episode that's going to come out either one before this or two before is with um, David Mandel, founder of, of Bardstown. And he was walking me through the whole ethos of how Bardstown was founded, the contract distilling kind of aspect of it, having people come in. Um, but it, in, in this case, in Milam and Green's case, you've got two distilling functions. And I'm curious yeah. how that arrangement came about. I, I think it really is uh, between Marlene and Heather. They are just in pursuit of making the most delicious whiskey available uh, to to us, thankfully. And uh, I know that she, I know that it's it's more Heather being able to rely on Marlene's ability to have access. Uh, to having worked for so long in the Kentucky industry. She knows everyone. Uh, I even witnessed this myself, like watching her like walk into a hotel in Louisville and literally 30 people are like, Marlene. (laughs) So uh, I think it really does come from Marlene wanting to be able to distill on the stills that she was used to working on versus uh, she also did want, wants to distill on, she does want to distill on uh, pot stills. And that's what we have in Texas. We have mm-hmm. the smaller pot still, and now we have a larger uh, thousand gallon Vendome uh, that we just got that we're waiting to use because we've got all this construction going on. But that's, I mean, that's really about Marlene wanting to be able to distill on di- in, in different ways. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, and listening to, uh, to some of the interviews before this episode of uh, really, all three of the, uh, if I may say so, leading ladies of Milam and Green, mm-hmm. you, Heather, and Marlene. Um, Marlene reminded me a lot of 
my uh, conversations with Pam Howman. Mm. I know they would have overlapped at, at beam for a while. And um, just sounds like the same kind of personality. We're just like, you know, kind of a head down. I want to distill. I want to get this stuff done. Kind of yeah. So it, were, it just reminded me of, of, uh, of Pam quite a bit. And yeah, there's something to like Kentucky wisdom. I mean, that's why we have our Marlene's moments. She's just very straightforward. Just want just wants to be able to do work, uh, do good work, and it's 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 pretty inspiring, actually. Um, I really I really enjoy the the tone she sets. That's great. I mean, we know in any business, you have to set the tone for the distillery, set the tone for the business, and people are going to be happier. Otherwise, I mean, you can taste it in the whiskey. Yeah, um, for sure. So, uh, she'll be back um, a little bit. So, just to Milan Green's location, you guys are about an hour, an hour west of Austin, an hour north of San Antonio ish, mm-hmm. I think. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I'm not great with Texas geography. Like, I had to look at, I'm from the Northeast. So, like, it's kind of foreign to me, honestly. Fair enough. But, I don't, I mean, I just know where the states are uh, on that end. So I got you. The fact that you yeah. know where individual cities are, you're doing great. That's fine. Thank you, Google Maps. Um, but, <laughs> so the uh, the last Texas distillery I spoke to on the podcast was uh, Still Austin. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, great, great team there as well, um, but like dead in the heart of the city. Yes. Whereas you all are out in the country or in the kind of rolling hills of texas if you will mm-hmm. um so i'd love to delve into uh, what the environment is like there what the climate is like and how that dictates what you do with the whiskey absolutely yeah uh, our rick house specifically is um in the middle of the hill country uh not surrounded it's not really shaded or anything there's like a couple oak trees nearby uh, so it really does get hit by any time the wind changes, anytime there's a temperature change, that rick house is getting hit with that uh, with that weather. And we have seen it where it will be uh, 80 degrees one day and then drop down to 40 the next. Uh, during the freeze, we it got really cold in the rick house to the point where things, you know, obviously alcohol can't freeze, but it was definitely much chillier in there than it needed to be uh to then like three weeks later it's back up in the 90s because it's texas and so um it's just uh, whereas kentucky tennessee more of the typical whiskey making states have more of a regular season they have uh, more regular temperatures that they stay between on a week to week basis we do not have that luxury and we have no shielding from whatever the weather decides to do so um it's it's pretty it's interesting uh, we it, it, we see it in in terms of like our angel share is higher um we we see it in terms of like how our whiskey is aging uh we honestly don't need to leave it in the barrel that long before it picks up really dark brown color uh, on our texas distillate is really dark brown in comparison to some of the other Kentucky or Tennessee barrels. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's super important. And if anything is, is the thing that gets me the most nerdy right now about whiskey is terroir. Uh, because I know there's been this confused to me, like, you know, what, how does terroir affect whiskey? I'm like, come on down to Milam and green. Cause we are seeing it. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I should say, uh, I should have said this before, but, um, you know, feel free to go as nerdy as you want. This okay. audience can definitely <laughs> handle it. 
like when you say high angel share, they want to like, oh, is that like 12%? Is that, trust me, they'll they'll want to know. Um, I want to yeah. know, but I know they'll want to know as well. Um, and the reason well, I ask yeah. that is because- I mean, I, I would know, say- I would say what the, because I've heard Kentucky, Tennessee, it's around eight, eight to 10% and, or in the summer. Uh, And then, right. I'm like, "Mm, I think I was asking in June. So that's why. Uh, And then for us, it can be up to like 12 to 14%. So it's like, it's, it's, it's a lot. We got to get that stuff in the bottle. (laughs) Right. And uh, you're dealing with kind of a high or low humidity or is it variable at all? It is variable. Uh, in the hill country specifically here and I'm based in Houston and it is high humidity all the time we have some distilleries here that are really dealing with that uh, it's not as bad in the hill country as it would be to try to have a distillery here for sure that's a hell of a drive that you've got to do when you're uh, going to the distillery I mean as a brand investor you got to be close to a major airport and in one of the biggest yeah. whiskey markets in the state and so I'm I'm a native Houstonian who's happy to be here <laughs> Hey, look, fourth largest city in the country. That's nothing to sneeze at. So lots of whiskey drinkers. <laughs> lots of whiskey drinkers. Um, do love Houston. I, I have not. It's really the one. It's the one Texas area I can say I've been down to multiple times, and I really do love it there. Nice. So, props to Houston. Uh, and so with the um, the angel share, the reason I'm asking about the humidity, uh, we also had a recent guest, Colin uh, Keegan from Santa Fe Spirits, mm. and you know they're. Uh, also completely different environment, but he's saying, you know, they have almost zero humidity, 7,000 feet above sea level. So they also have about a 12% angel share almost year round is there's everything just gets drained out of the barrels. There's no water to kind of come back in and replace it from the humidity in the air. So just everything comes out. Um, So with Milo Green, when you're saying you're getting that great color or what we think of as a great color on the whiskey in, you know, two to three years, if that um, you're dealing with, regular 53 gallon barrels all that kind of stuff like um i should say also what does a warehouse look like uh right now it is really full (laughs) it's uh yeah we've we've run out of space we need another rick house um and it's that's a whole thing but uh yes we do have all of our barrel the the only variation i think in the barrels uh is really when we're using our port casks to age the uh the indiana rye those barrels can be of various sizes uh, from barrel to barrel. Uh, but yes, we, we are using the typical um, casks. Oh man, this is where I am. Okay. Yeah, there it is. Was, good. I know we get All 280 good. bottles out of it. <laughs> that is, that that's, is what I know about those casks, but yeah. That's that's a really good yield, honestly. 280 out of a, a regular size barrel. That's and that's a, well, we are, we're able to proof it. I mean, that's that is for our single barrel. We're proofing it down to so that we're able to get it to 280. But yes, even so, yeah, that's cast that's strength, still a, cast yeah. strength would be a little lower for sure, right? <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, let's uh, let's keep with the nerdiness. I mean, uh, when with the distillation process, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, what well, actually, let's go backwards, might as well go through the mm-hmm. whole the whole thing. So, sure. uh, what kind of mash bills are you working with? Uh, so the thing is we're working with different ones and some of them are coming from distilleries who we're not, I mean, that they're, I, I, I suppose people could guess at different, uh, mash bills, uh, for us though, like when we're distilling, 
that's that is the mash bill that we talk about the most, and that's uh, Marlene's mash bill. Uh, that's the seventy-two percent corn, twenty-two uh, percent rye, and the rest is malted barley. <laughs> um, and yeah, that that one is the one that she's using in Texas, in Kentucky. That that's yeah, <laughs> her that's proprietary fine. yeast strain, all of that. Uh, that was the next thing was the was yeast strain I, I saw on the website. It was a proprietary strain, so you know, figuring not the the usual, not Fleischmann's, but like the usual distiller's yeast. Um, yeah. No, she if, apparently she described it as like yeah, she described it as like she went through she goes through books, she goes through catalogs, and she tries to figure out yeah what is going to be the best in terms of using it for a pot still versus for the column still. All of that matters, and so. Um, I, I like the idea of a huge catalog of yeast. <laughs> it sounds great. It sounds like if you haven't already, which you probably have, uh, we need to talk, have you talked to Pat Heist? <laughs> oh, really? I mean, he, he is a catalog of yeast. I mean, just oh. in his head, uh, he's catalog, of, but also guys like Alan Bishop or, um, I mean, there are, there are a number of them now who are just, they're pulling these yeast strains that you'd never thought of before, but like, but to your point, and to, it sounds like Marlene's point as well, um, it's highly trained on, on what you're trying to achieve mm-hmm. from both the fermentation into what kind of still you're using into what the whiskey's going to be. And uh, the regular yeast strain doesn't always work that well for mm-hmm. trying to achieve something, period, let, let alone something unique. Uh, so sorry, that was a little bit of a rant there, but- No, no, uh, yeah, here for it. Uh, but so in- in Texas, you said you you work in a smaller pot still right now. You've got the thousand gallon that just came in, um, mm-hmm. about to go online. Uh, so, is it in? You kind of have the picture on the website, but uh, it's entirely pot still down in, in Texas. Uh, it is a hybrid for a new one, uh, yet to be named. Still, the other <laughs> one is uh, is Little Ben is our little, little pot still now. Uh, but yeah, it, it has, it has a, it is mostly a pot, um, but there is uh, one column element to it. So it is technically a hybrid. Hey, look, we've seen them more and more there. I, I love a good pot still whiskey. It gives great mouthfeel, but you need the column sometimes to strip out some of that bad stuff. And, mm-hmm. and was this, um, you mentioned it was coming from Vendome. Yes. Um, so congratulations on getting that in the first place. So here they have quite a backlog right now. I mean, again, I feel like that speaks to, you know, it's Marlene. She needs a, she needs a still, get her a still. <laughs> so, yeah. That's fair. Uh, so to hear, uh, you, know, you have the, the small pot still in Texas, the, uh, the setup at Bardstown. Uh, to your knowledge, is the pot is the new pot still, the new hybrid still, let's say, uh, meant to kind of mimic the setup at Bardstown? Is it meant to create something new? I, I think to my to my knowledge, it is mostly because we want to be able to produce a lot more whiskey than we currently are able to. Uh, in order for us to ensure that we have product in the future, we, we need to be laying down barrels yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are, it's mostly about being able to get that volume that uh, I know Marlene is used to, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and really making sure that our distillery is not just a, it's not just a place where you can come and enjoy cocktails and pours and everything, but it is a working distillery. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's, that it was the, 
that was the mission behind getting a larger still. Imagine, I mean, she knows this, I'm sure, but I mean, you're not going to meet, you're not going to meet Jim Beam. It's like, I think yeah. they have 84 inch columns there. Like right. That. Well, and we, you know, we don't necessarily want to because there's so that mean that takes so many more hands on deck to make sure everything is going well. Like we are still a tiny, mighty team. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's about, it's about doing as much as you can with what you have. Right. And as you said, you have need more, more rick houses. So there's gotta be a place to put the barrels once you, uh -huh. once oh, you yeah. fill them. I would love to have a second rick house. <laughs> I would love that. Talked to a few distillers recently who have said the exact same thing. <laughs> They're like, we need more, we need more rick houses. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes uh, a few of them are using shipping containers. And some of my favorites up here in New York do that. Um, Limestone Branch was there. They kind of do multiple different things. But uh, everyone needs rickhouses. Everyone mm -hmm. needs them. And of course, that asks the question too, uh, where are you getting the barrels from? Or what are the barrel specs? Uh, oh, wow. Um, so I... I know that we get our barrels from Kelvin Cooperage. Uh, I am not that, certain where. That's, that's fine. That's fine to be just. There it is. Okay, you got that's, it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't want you to put in, to put you in a position where you have to I, guess. Because I do not yeah. know where the other barrels come from. No, no, but, all good. All or, good. Yeah. Okay, so just just for Milan Green, you know, um, so they come from Kelvin, um, mm -hmm. friends of the podcast. They were on uh, an early episode of them because I knew nothing about Cooperage and so I wanted to. Ooh. <laughs> What kind of, uh, you know, char, toasts, any kind of treatment to the barrels? Yeah, so because we do need a, uh, a lighter char uh, for, mm. for our Texas aging process. Uh, so we typically don't go above a two um, mm. just because we, we like the whiskey is going to get up in that wood without mm. any additional flavoring needed. Right. Uh, so we, we, yeah, we definitely lean on a, on a lighter char. It makes total sense. Um, I, I'm trying to remember whether Still Austin did that as well because they're and uh, you know I hope the comparison is okay for me to be making. Yeah, it's just the ones I'm familiar with that are the closest, if you will. Of course, yeah. Um, no, the, the number two makes makes perfect sense. Uh, all right, so right now, I know Mylon Green has a couple of different uh, products coming out uh, with you know your own distillate as or blended with other distillates. Uh, just looking at my notes to make sure this one of those edits that I cut out. Sure. Uh, um, ah, okay. So, so once the whiskey is, is barreled, it sits for however long it needs to, um, are you able to get it past like the two to three year age or is it started to become like concentrate at that point? Uh, we, so we definitely have seen some barrels kind of, I, I wouldn't say necessarily aging out because we're still trying to figure it out. Like right now, our oldest barrels are, are a little over three years old um, mm -hmm. that are, that have been aging in Texas the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I will, I, I do know that for a pork cast finished rye, as soon as we put that rye in the port barrels, it's like three months. Uh, mm -hmm. We thought it was going to take a lot longer to get the flavor from those barrels into the whiskey and nope, just uh, time is not really on the side of the Texas barrel. Uh, and I've had some delicious, like, I'm not gonna lie, eight month old whiskey 
that tastes like it's much older. Um, and I have to, I have to think that that is just because of where it was sitting. Um, so yeah. <laughs> I, I have nothing against, I'm not ageist when it comes to whiskey at all. Right. Like if it's, <laughs> if it's at eight months or nine months or whatever, and it tastes good, mm-hmm. tastes good. I, I have a, I'm looking over at my uh, shelf. I have a dad's hat ride that someone gave to me. This is Pennsylvania. So mm-hmm. much cooler weather. Mm-hmm. Um, that's nine months old cast mm-hmm. strength. And I swear to God, it was five. I thought it was five years old, at least when I tried it, if it's ready, it's ready. Yeah. The The problem becomes there are a lot of like one or two year bourbons and rice that are not ready. <laughs> right. That's yeah. Kind of, that's kind of overshadow the ones that are ready. Yeah. And man, and that's where it really just comes down to palate and, and expertise. And like, that's why we trust Heather. She knows she's not going to let something leave. That's not ready. Um, but it, it does. I, sometimes I've interacted with people who are like, well, I really, I really want to have like a 15 year old Texas bourbon. I was like, no, you do not. <laughs> that does not sound good at all. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I would say for me, four, four years is kind of the limit on general Texas bourbon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't necessarily gotten stuff that was aged better, aged more that was better in any way. So especially these 15, it's going to be dust in the barrel after 15 years. I know. I was like, there will be no whiskey at that point. It'll right. be a whiskey soaked barrel. <laughs> exactly. If that might just, I just yeah. fall apart at that point. Yeah. Um, but you're, you're completely right. The, the age is, it's, everyone has the Kentucky and Tennessee age in their mind of how long a barrel can go, how long a whiskey should age, but Texas is just accelerated. It's, uh, mm-hmm. I, I tell people, it's hard with American whiskey drinker, um, no knock against, I am one, but it's, <laughs> it's hard because the most, uh, the easiest comparisons for non-American whiskey are always Scotch or Irish or Canadian. Um, but really in this case, the more apt comparison is uh, Indian whiskey. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, like they're getting the 12 to, I think in Goa, sometimes like 15% angel share a year. Mm-hmm. So they have a two to three-year-old whiskey uh, that's going to have great color, great mouthfeel. Um, won't taste like it's a second fill in their case, as opposed yeah. to the new charred oak. And that's okay. That's because of where it is. And that's tastes good there. But it's it's hard for a lot of people, I think, to get past the age statement or lack thereof sometimes. Yeah, no, whiskey traditions are just, I, I don't know of another industry that is just so committed to them. Like the car industry is obviously not <laughs> committed right. to what the bottle T was and like making all the cars have, you know, a similar look and feel. Uh, so it, that, if anything, as a, uh, as a whiskey nerd, that's my kind of hope and wish for the whiskey nerds of the future is that we're able to embrace innovation and thinking outside the, outside the tradition, uh, just in search of the tastiest whiskey that is available, because I'm also concerned that we're going to run out of whiskey. Um, if we're not finding new ways of making it that can keep up with demand. So. Absolutely. And that comes with getting another Rick house and a larger still. So you're already, you know, we're on it. part of the way there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the, uh, you know, the next step in the process, of course, you've got the barrels, they're aged, they're tasted and one or more of the team members says, all right, this is ready. Yeah. Uh, at that point, 
there was something mentioned on the website that I wanted to ask you about, which was the blind proofing. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I'm fascinated by this one, because I really don't know what it means, but also um, I just want to know how you, how you blind proof, uh, you know, batches or single barrels. Um, so just love to hear about that process. This, so this is where I'm concerned that the website has not been updated. <laughs> um, but because here, okay, here's the thing. This may be something I come back to and be like, that's not what it means at all. But this is what I think it means. Uh, I know that we do blind proofing, wherein we literally, we do try everything at cast strength. Uh, and then we will like basically do like a blind tasting where it is proofed down a bit but you don't know what the proofs are. You're, they're all mixed up. Uh, and cause again, we're really just trying, we're in search of the tastiest whiskey. Uh, and the thing is, is that nine times out of 10, the whiskey is all, like, we always prefer it to be cash strength. <laughs> so it's like, at this point, I, I don't even know if we're doing blind proofing anymore because we pretty much have decided that every single time it's going to be cash strength um, when it comes to these special bottles. Now, when it comes to, uh, our single barrel, uh, that one, I mean, that one, that our, our regular single barrel is 86 proof. And that is just to get the most barrels out of the, the most bottles out of the barrel. Um, well, when it, we have like a barrel pick situation, we do allow those people to figure out and we do that, uh, blind proofing, you know, with them too, so that they're, that they're just choosing it based on taste and not based on the number that they see in front of them. Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, Pandaren, Portiskeg, Glenallachy, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more, there's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, no, that that makes total sense. Uh, and uh, I, but I am going to make sure. That's that's all, like this is what I'm. All fine. Seen. <laughs> all yeah. fine. Um, no, I'm a I'm a cast strength guy myself. I, I just most of the time will prefer to cast strength. Uh, mm-hmm. But I always encourage people okay. to make sure to try the in this case the 86 proof uh, to see what the whiskey is at quote unquote entry level. Yeah, because not everyone, I mean, no one starts at cast strength, right? If I mean, if you do, God bless you. And, you know, I'd love to talk to you on the podcast, but um, nobody starts at 120 proof whiskey Uh -uh. Uh, with the one more question on the on the proofing. So, um, of course, because everything is accelerated in terms of your timeline and the aging process, um, do you have time to do kind of a slow proof down to that 86? Or, you know, how long would it take to get from, let's say, cast strength to ready for 86 proof bottling? That I do not know. 
I do not know what that timeline looks like. Uh, I, I do know that like it, it does take about a week for us to move things from the barrels into the vat that is hooked up to our bottling system. Uh, but I'm, yeah, I'm, I, I don't know that I want to commit to any answer on that. <laughs> That's completely fine. Completely fine. Um, okay. This is, a, I mean, this is where it gets fun for me also on the podcast, because when you're, there's always something else to explore or some nuance sure. that someone finds on a website or like someone find on, on a review that I wrote or something that's like, you might want to double check that or, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. Something. No, so I'm 100% about to fine. call Marlene after this and be like, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're all good. You're all good. Um, I promise. Uh, the, the main reason just to tell you why that the main reason I was asking about the, the blind proofing and, and mm-hmm. how long it takes is, uh, it came out of the Santa Fe Sparrows conversation, oh, okay. which was, you know, of course, most, if not basically, unless everything you're putting out is cast strength, mm-hmm. the distillery is proofing down something. Right. Um, and you hope it's with good water. You hope it's this, this, and that. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, Colin was, he introduced me to a new term, uh, which was saponification. Mm. And it's this idea that if you, if you don't slow proof, or if you, if you proof down too quickly, mm-hmm. it shocks the alcohol and, mm-hmm. uh, the water shocks, the alcohol, it breaks the bonds between the alcohol molecules and the, you know, the scent molecules and the mouthfeel molecules. And suddenly uh, it's almost like when you have a non-chill filtered whiskey and you throw an ice cube in it. And it gets cloudy, mm-hmm. but instead of it just, you know, flocking, which might not have an effect on flavor. Uh, in this case, it does have a big effect on flavor because of which bonds are being broken. Sure. So um, I've, I've started to ask that with distillers because I'm, I'm curious how long it happens. I know some can do it in yeah. as, few, as little as a few days. Colin does like, I think it's like one to two months per batch or something, you know, half a gallon a day of a 15, half a gallon of water for a 15 barrel batch. Okay. Day. So that's minuscule amounts. Yeah. Um, So that, that was really why I was, why I was curious. So um, now now I'm curious. (laughs) I'm I'm definitely like, yeah, these are the questions that I wouldn't necessarily think to ask Marlene, uh, but I'm going to. No, it it wasn't one that was on my radar until Colin just threw that one. I was like, can you elaborate a little bit? (laughs) Cause never heard of this one before. Yeah. Uh, So all good. All good. So as you said, uh, you're kind of the, the, you do a lot of single barrels. Mm-hmm. It was an overgeneralization, but you do a lot of single barrel products. Mm-hmm. I especially wanted to ask and go down this rabbit hole because uh, in one of the interviews that I listened to, I think it was on uh, when you and Marlene were on the Bourbon Road. Yeah. Um, you had them tasting a couple of things and it was noticeable you started with a single barrel. Yes. <laughs> which... <laughs> You know, if you're setting up a tasting, normally you'd never start with a single barrel because you always want to start with like the core profile and, you know, branch out if you will from there. Um, so I just would love to hear the thought process behind that. Um, I want to make very clear. I don't think it's wrong. I, I'm very curious as to how that came about yeah. and why to start oh, yeah. with it. It is 100% a Blair decision because <laughs> um, I know Marlene, she's she's just there to drink the whiskey. She will drink it in any order. Uh, but for me, it's important to start with a single barrel for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think, I think a single barrel, <laughs> I'm going to say this, 
I think a single barrel is maybe the the only way that you're going to be able to know what the palate of that distillery is like um, at, at its very basic level. So the only reason why that particular barrel was bottled as a single barrel was because we believe that that barrel can stand on its own. So it's about building trust with palate. If you like the single barrel, we have we have an agreement with palate. We're going to move on to other whiskeys that now we're starting to have our own um, uh, direction and strategy on versus a single barrel. Anyone, any distillery can do that. It's just what barrel are they picking? Also, it is our lowest proof because we are trying to get the most bottles out of those barrels. So in terms of like starting a tasting, you do want to start with something that is on the lower proof end, just so that you're not shocking your palate with something a little uh, higher end. Uh, but I also just think it's 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 how we started uh, when we were Ben Milam. That was the primary function of Ben Milam was just putting out single barrels of, of the barrels that were there. And so it, it's a nice way of starting the story as well. It's like, this is what we used to do. We just we used to just take whiskey from other places, put it in a bottle, put it on the shelf. Now we also distill. We also have experiments. We also finish. We also do all these things. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's really why it's just uh, get, it's it's an introduction. I think of single barrels as introductory whiskey to uh, to any distillery. I mean, it, in in your case, in Mylon Reed's case, it sounds like it is. I mean, it, it fits within that construct that. Uh, that I had said before that you're trying to get on one hand, not shock the palate because, yeah. you know, don't hit them with the booker's level right away, but, right. Um, but still get, you know, what should this whiskey taste like really? Yeah. Um, and uh, at, at 86 proof, yeah, you should be able to, to handle that uh, to really taste it. Now, when you're doing a tasting, mm-hmm. what follows the single barrel? triple cask all the way because the barrels that we're using for our single barrel program some of those barrels end up in the triple cask uh so whether we're pulling from tennessee or kentucky stock for our single barrel program those are the same that's the same stock we're pulling for our our triple cask uh we are just then marrying it with the distillate that marlene has from from texas so uh it's it, it just yeah it just feels like it's a natural progression. We're in bourbon land. Let's stay in bourbon land before we go anywhere else. <laughs> totally fair. Uh, all right. So we go single barrel, triple mm-hmm. cask, um, and uh, triple cask. What proof is that at usually? 94. That's a 94. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're going to 86, 94. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice progression. Nice and easy progression. Nice yeah. and easy. I was looking for the word and it just, yeah, nice and easy progression. Yeah. Um, and then... Let's keep going. What comes next? Okay. Well, so what we didn't do on the bourbon road, because it wasn't ready yet, but what I would do in a tasting right now is if we did have a bottle of Castle Hill available, that Mm. is what I would go to next. Again, staying in bourbon, also Castle Hill uh, last year. I'm so glad I brought the bottle with me over here. (laughs) Last year, the proof was around 108. Uh, This year, I believe it's a little bit higher. It's at 112. Uh, But Again, just like kind of keep letting the palate, letting the age of the whiskey also increase. Um, and and that, and if anything, it's like single barrels kind of show off our palate, triple cask shows off our distilling uh, ability, 
And then the Castle Hill shows off uh, Heather's blending ability. So it's like, these are these are our three superpowers. <laughs> we have palette, we have distilling, and we have blending. So. That's, it's fantastic. And uh, you said the, the age of the whiskey is also going up through that as well. Yes. And um, the, I don't remember the first one, but the second, the second Castle Hill series just came out, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that, that was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to guess at, at what it was because I don't remember off the top of my head, but um, what were the, uh, the specs on that bottle? So <laughs> it's about 26 barrels of whiskey in between uh, 13 to 14 years. Uh, we mm-hmm. almost could have had it. I believe it at 14, but we had one, we had one cast that was straggling <laughs> a little bit behind. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but de- definitely more vintage whiskey, way more leather notes, all the, all those like structured kind of older whiskey notes that you get. Um, but I mean, Heather's brilliant. Uh, she picks the best ones that go together. I mean, sometimes if you do get visit the distillery, uh, there are often bottles that come out of the Castle Hill experience that like those become single barrels that are just available to the distillery because she's just, like, this is delicious, but it's not going in Castle Hill. So just there it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so it's, it, it's just a gorgeous older bourbon, uh, all Tennessee, all from Tennessee love bottle your own experiences mm-hmm. so i just got back from my first trip from kentucky so um nice. first time getting to do like you know of course the the big ones heaven hill mictors all fantastic experiences and it gives you a whole different appreciation for the process that the whiskey goes through what the blenders do what the distillers do and mm-hmm. what the barrels do so um having not even been there i can definitely you know, fully encourage people if you're in the area and can swing by do it you will enjoy well, it. And we're having a huge, we're actually, we make a big deal out of it whenever we do it. And so uh, the next one will be for Father's Day. It just, it's a whole, it's a whole shebang. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. And so the next thing I wanted to go to was, uh, I guess, partially less about, it's less specific to Marlon Green, mm-hmm. but it is something that, uh, that you said on a different podcast. I didn't write down which one, but it was a statement that I thought was really strong and I really agreed with it. And I wanted to bring it up with you, mm. which was that um, sourcing is the name for a problem we don't actually have. Yes. Uh, and uh, at face value, take mm-hmm. it for what I, what I believe it means. I fully agree. You know, but sourcing has been, I think as you were explaining it in context, you know, they've been doing it in other countries for, and blending for the entire history of whiskey, basically, mm-hmm. uh, and it and sourcing, whether to make a sole product or to blend with your own distillate, should not be looked down upon. Basically, provided you do it well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I just love to you know open the floor. If there's anything more you wanted to kind of add to that statement or explain where that was coming from. Yeah. uh, I mean, it really did come from people saying, oh, well, you, I mean, you work for Texas distillery, but it doesn't actually make Texas whiskey, or that's not what it's known for. Like our, the uh, one, one whiskey that I did leave out of our tasting was our port cast finished rye. It's the Mm -hmm. one that's won us the most awards. And at the end of the day, it is an Indiana rye that we have, you know, that we'll have. And then we put it in a port cast barrel for about three to four months and then it's done. And it just feels like 
we, I mean, we should still get credit for that. We're still putting out delicious whiskey that everyone seems to be enjoying, even if they're not a rye drinker. Uh, and so I really had to think about like, why am I getting so defensive? <laughs> uh, and it was because I, I do, the more I understand whiskey history, the more I see it as like, oh, perhaps this is like a, a marketing issue, a branding issue. Um, and, and I've tried to study it. Like, I think it actually does come from prohibition, uh, what distilleries were able to do. They really wanted to put out there like, oh, you, do you know where your bourbon is coming from? And like all this sort of hysteria. Uh, that's why our bottled and bond uh, laws are so very specific about like, you have to put what distillery comes from. And I think that all of that is great, but I think we can't fault a distillery for, especially when it's Marlene going and distilling in a different, you know, it's actually her distilling. She's bringing those barrels back. We're going to have to put Bardstown on there, but we also should be, it should be fine. I don't know. It should, is it, does, is it tasty? Great. That's, that's all we need. So yeah, that, uh, I love, I love, uh, sparring with people who want to look down on sourced whiskey. Uh, the only time where I'm just like, okay, yeah, I'll let you have it. I'm not a fan of celebrity brands of any kind. To me, that is like bad sourcing. <laughs> that is literally a celebrity just wants their name on a bottle and who knows what their palate is like, who knows what their experience is like. Uh, I don't, but, I don't yeah. know every single person who listens to this podcast, but of the people I know, I can say not a single one would disagree with you on that one for sure. Okay, yeah. Uh, there's, there's a bit of a, um, let's say there's a bit of a bad reputation with celebrity whiskeys at the moment. Yeah. In, in just not my, so, no. not my favorite. No. Not my favorite. So with the, with the sourcing aspect, I think this goes back to what you were saying about both Marlene's ability to distill and, and her palate also Heather's ability to really do the same, but also her blending the, as you said, superpowers of, mm-hmm. of the entire team. Um, it's personal. I have, I have no problem with sourced whiskey or sourcing part mm-hmm. or all of your distillate. Um, the place where I start to differentiate is usually if you take a single barrel from Indiana, mm-hmm. you pull it down that one barrel if you were to bring it down to Texas mm-hmm. and, uh, and slap a label on it without really doing anything to it. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's fine. And uh, I know that's uh, done by a lot of distilleries. That's fine, but there's something to sourcing and then tinkering. Sure. That, that deserves a lot more respect. Um, and when you say you take you know, arrive from Indiana and finishing it in the port casks that is doing something different to yes. the whiskey. It's enhancing it in some way. It's, you know, and it's not just you're throwing it in the port cask four months, three months later saying, okay, it's done. You know, you have to make mm-hmm. sure it's, it's right. It's not too tannic. It's not, not okay enough. You know, what's the proof going to be? Um, and that can also be an argument for sourcing is that it's one thing to just slap a label on something, which plenty of groups do plenty of let's say less than reputable brands sometimes do. Uh, mm-hmm. And what uh, you all are doing, which is, as you said, Heather going around trying to find the best barrels, Mar- Marlene trying to distill the best distillate that you can do mm-hmm. and marrying the two, uh, whether it's all Texas, all Tennessee, Indiana, Kentucky, and trying to find that right thing. So that could be another 
a feather in your cap for the next person who says sourcing isn't okay. Right. Yeah. And oh man, especially when you when you see a barrel that came from Kentucky, if you if you were to thieve from that barrel and then thieve from it six months later, it's a different color, it has a different mm-hmm. taste. Uh, so tinkering, whether that is putting in finished casks or whether it's just we're using Texas terroir as a as a whiskey mm-hmm. lab. Um, yeah, it, 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 we, we would not be, if we were not able to source, we would not be able to have as much fun with whiskey as we currently are having. So, yeah. Absolutely. And there are plenty of distillers who uh, kind of refuse to source. They get on the high horse and like, no, no, sure. it's only going to be our own stuff. And to an extent, look, fine. Good for you. If you want to wait three years, four years, however long, um, produce vodka, gin, et cetera. In the meantime, to keep the doors open again, no problem there. That's time-honored tradition at this point mm-hmm. um, but then once your whiskey is ready better make sure it's good yeah better be tasty and uh and if anything that's that's what we that's what we can guarantee or that's what we are trying to guarantee exactly exactly um so i mean this has been a great conversation there are a lot of different questions i want to ask now um i do want to hopefully have you I think you're okay coming back so far if I can oh, yeah, for, for, sure. for that other segment. Um, so I want to save some questions for that that I would have otherwise asked here. Yeah. But um, I think why don't we uh, you know, close out with the Castle Hill series because that is kind of the, the super premium um, end of the, of the brand if I'm reading it correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so what the inspiration for that was and how it came about. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I know it was... I mean, in some ways it was our pursuit of a higher end bottle um, that really could show off what Heather does all on her own. Um, so this is where, I mean, unfortunately, Marlene, Marlene is, is, is really more just the caretaker of the barrels for that, for this particular spirit, but it is Heather going through all of the barrels, finding a group that fits together uh, and, and it takes forever, it seems like. Uh, and then, and then trying to figure out a name for this series was also tricky. Uh, we, you know, we floated around some like fictional versions, maybe some Greek gods and things just to try to broaden the horizon of the whiskey shelf in terms of names. But, uh, Castle Hill is where Heather works and does all of her blending. And it is in Austin. Uh, it is the building, uh, that overlooks, uh, you can actually you can see the capital from this old military castle uh that's where the texas military academy used to be and she has this beautiful office with a huge oak table where she's able to do it's very hard life for heather sometimes (laughs) um but it does take a long time to taste through everything and figure out which barrels are going to go together uh where you're not taste like where the maybe some of the off notes of one barrel are are um, rounded out by some of the sweeter, more floral notes of another. And so that's, that's really what she's doing. And it, I, I call it whiskey magic because uh, I'm still trying to figure out how she does it. So um, yeah, that's, I, I don't know how many Castle Hill series we'll be able to do because we are running out of vintage Tennessee whiskey for her to play with. Uh, and this year's bottle is better than last year. Mostly, I think she just, she just learned a lot from last year's version. So this year's is even better. I mean, in talking to people in the whiskey industry, there's two 
two kind of strands that keep coming out. One is that everyone loves what they do. It's kind of the ebullience just flows off of people. Um, and really from anything from Cooperages to brand ambassadors to distillers, everything, everything in between. Um, so that's number one. And yeah, it seems like a really hard life to be trying whiskey all day. And um, like, I, I love my job. I love my day job. This is my not day job. Yeah, sure. Uh, this, um, but, you know, getting to talk to people where just everyone loves what they're doing and uh, wants to talk about it and is thrilled to talk about it is, is fun. And, um, you know, it's a good way. So I hope you enjoyed your time on, on the podcast. Um, we'll did. definitely have you. We'll have you back for the uh, Patreon only under the influencer segment Perfect. at another time. Um, in the meantime, close out as we always do. Where can people find you? Oh, yeah. Uh, I am Be A Whiskey Nerd uh, on all the things. Uh, and that's B-E-A, Whiskey Nerd, spelled with an E, the American way. Uh, on Instagram and Twitter, uh, I'm very excited about my whiskey hot takes that I've been doing lately. Uh, so if you want to come have fun with me, uh, I, I'm here for all the hot takes uh, on whiskey. And so, yeah, that, that's 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 the best place to find me. Oh, also the Whiskey Women podcast. Hold on. Oh, yes, <laughs> I also have a podcast. Yes. Uh, yeah, we just ended our fourth season, uh, but that's where me and my, my co-host Janet get to interview mostly smaller distilleries that may not get uh, the attention of, of larger podcasts. Uh, we're really focused on, on finding those people and uh, giving them the mic as it were. So, and also just having too much fun. We have that it's, it's more of, yeah, lots of fun on that podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah thank you for mentioning it. I, I almost, I almost completely forgot it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't you, know. Ooh. It's no, just because I'm not I doing definitely. it. Yeah. No, it's fine. Yes. Uh, go like and subscribe on, uh, I'm assuming, your favorite podcast apps, all, all the major things. ones. Um, it's pretty rare at this point you find someone who's only on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Okay. Then. Um, <laughs> but um, no. And uh, so, yes, listen to the Whiskey Women. It, I listened to a couple of episodes. It was really a lot of fun to listen to. Thanks. Um, nice. Follow me as always, Whiskey My Wedding Ring or Whiskey Ring Podcast and all the socials. Um, definitely check the show notes in this episode for links to uh, to Blair's work, to Milam and Green, to I'll throw a link up for um, for Heather's book as well, because um, I mean it's gotten such great reviews. I can't imagine I'm going to read it and be like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have said anything about it. So <laughs> no, it's fantastic. I think, think that'll be fine. Um, and that's about it. Uh, so uh, Blair, stay on with me just for a second after we finish recording, and uh, it's been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. <laughs>